Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime. I'm your host, Heather, and this week's case got me so big mad that I was worried we'd need to rename the entire podcast for this episode. But I have composed myself, so sit back and buckle up because it's about to get real, real fast. Nobody cares about whatever small talk I could throw in right here, so let's just skip it. Thomas Brown was your all-American small-town kid from good old Canadian Texas. And when I say small-town, I'm talking 2,700 people. Their graduating classes are around 65 students per year. There were more students attending my high school than there are people in the town that Thomas grew up in. He was a senior at Canadian High School who had been a starting football player until about two months into the season. Another kid had come in and taken his place as a lineman, and he decided that he wasn't going to pursue football after high school, so he might as well put his efforts into something that mattered more to him, and for him, that was theater and his grades. Thomas was super into theater and public speaking, and I can't even begin to comprehend the personality and confidence that takes, because just the thought of public speaking gives me the pre-vomit cold sweats. Thomas's parents had divorced when he was younger, but he was close to his mom, and his dad came to all of his important events. He was not lacking in the friend department whatsoever, and they seemed to come from all walks of life, from sports to theater to kids who really didn't seem to want to talk to anybody else. I've researched missing people before, and you guys who have been with me for a while know that I'm going to call it like I see it, and if someone isn't as great of a guy as everyone who loves him says he is, I'm going to be honest with you, but I dug and I dug and I dug, and literally everyone seems to love this kid. Even his ex-girlfriend Sage, who had started college when he started his senior year. They'd recently decided to call things off because it just wasn't practical for the both of them traveling back and forth, but they never skipped a beat when it came to being friends. Neither of them had any hard feelings, and they stayed in contact pretty much daily. But one day in November of 2016, everything changed and things in Canadian Texas would never be the same. On Thanksgiving Eve, November 23, 2016, Thomas left the house at around 6 p.m. in his red Dodge Durango with his mom's debit card to hang out with his friend Michael. It's slim pickings for entertainment in a small town, so him and Michael hit up a local convenience store slash deli type place called Alexander's. I've been told that Thomas didn't get anything, but Michael did. Then they get back in their car, and a little bit later, they parted ways. Thomas then heads to the middle school parking lot to meet up with his friends Caleb and Christian. And Christian is a girl, by the way, just figured I'd clarify that since it threw me off when I first started looking into this case. But Christian had never dated Caleb or Thomas. Thomas and Caleb leave their vehicles behind in the middle school parking lot and get into Christian's car. They drive around for a few hours, listen to music, talk, make some plans for the weekend. And at around 11.20 p.m., they all head back to the middle school to pick up their cars so that everybody could be back in time for their respective curfews. Thomas's curfew was midnight, and like I said, he was kind of the dream kid to have. He had never once missed it. The only times Thomas had been late were when he was held up getting a snack at the convenience store, and when that happened, he would always call ahead of time to let his mom know and ask if anyone at the house wanted anything. But after Thomas pulled out of that parking lot, no one ever saw him again. Or did they? 
He didn't show up for curfew, and within minutes, his mom and his older brother Tucker were texting him to see where he was. Their first text to him went delivered but not responded to, which wasn't like him at all. And by 12.15 a.m., they stopped going through altogether. Anyone with an iPhone knows that when you text someone, it says delivered under the message once it gets to the other person's phone, even if you don't have read receipts on. If it doesn't say delivered, the person hasn't received the text yet, maybe from bad service, maybe they're on the phone and not connected to Wi-Fi, which blocks anything incoming, or maybe their phone is off. But after 12.15 a.m. on Thanksgiving morning, no text would ever be marked as delivered again. His mom, Penny, was initially worried that her son might have gotten into a car accident, so everyone at the house went out looking for him. A cherry red Dodge Durango in a two-stoplight town is not going to be hard to find. As Penny headed out the door, she called Caleb's mom to see if he might know where Thomas would be. Penny could hear Caleb's mom wake him up, and he seemed genuinely shocked that Thomas hadn't come home yet. He had just seen him, and everything seemed fine. Christian's told what's going on, and before long, her and Caleb are both out on the road helping search for their friend, who they had just been with an hour ago. But no one can find him. After searching without a single sign of her son, it was apparent that he hadn't been in some kind of accident on his way home, and it was time to involve the sheriff's department. At 12.15 a.m., Penny called the non-emergency number and let them know what was going on. She wasn't really sure what to do or whether she should call 911 or the desk number because nothing really bad ever happens in Canadian. And either way, there was a good chance that she was going to know whoever answered the phone anyways. Being such a small town, obviously someone responded immediately like someone had shown the bat signal in the sky or something. Just kidding. 45 entire minutes later, she gets a phone call from the responding deputy. Not a house call, a phone call. He said he heard what was going on and that he was going to go look around for Thomas. He didn't show up to Thomas's house until 3.50 a.m. I wish I was making this up. There is a missing high school senior in a tiny-ass town. You have a solid chance of finding him in his bright red SUV that had been decorated with white lettering by the high school cheerleaders. But it took 45 minutes to even get so much as a phone call that one deputy was going to go looking for him. It took over an hour and a half for him to physically show up to their house. The sitting sheriff had just been elected, and I'm talking like two months before Thomas went missing. The new sheriff and the one he replaced were not fond of one another, but not for political reasons. When the current sheriff was a deputy in Lipscomb, a neighboring town, he came over into Canadian jurisdiction where he had no arresting authority and detained and questioned some teenagers in his vehicle, accusing them of trying to break into a theater in the middle of town, apparently because he saw them touch a door handle. He wouldn't have gotten any calls about this because the only calls you get to your police radio are from your own town, and he shouldn't have even seen it because it was outside of his jurisdiction. But he did it, and guess who one of those teenagers was? Thomas Brown. Let's continue. 
Now, I mentioned there was only one sheriff going out to look for Thomas, but the entire sheriff's department consists of eight deputies, one of whom is the sheriff himself, who is literally only 35 years old. There's also a chief deputy, a lieutenant, and five road officers who also double as investigators. There are even four hours a day between 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. where no officers on duty in the entire town. They're just on call. But when Penny called, the officer would have still been on duty. So what took him until 3 a.m. when he would assumingly be getting off duty to call her? At 3.50 a.m., Thomas's brother Tucker gets into the patrol vehicle with the deputy and goes with him to continue the officer's search. I use the word continue lightly because we just have to go off of his word here. At around 5.45 a.m., Tucker and the deputy are driving around the baseball and rodeo area of the town, which is near an industrial complex. Tucker worked at this complex two summers ago, so he knew that it was usually gated. But when they passed the gate that night, he noticed it was open. Tucker told his mom that he told the deputy he wanted to go back there to check it out, but according to Penny, the deputy seemed to be in a hurry and told Tucker that he needed to get off duty soon, so he needed to take him back to his house. But did he really need to get off duty soon? This is pure speculation, but as far as I can tell, there wasn't anyone who was supposed to be working the road at all during this time. If anything, he was going to or should have been going to swap with another deputy around 7 a.m. And none of that would have prevented him from looking in that gated area, nor should it have required taking Tucker back home. He could have simply had the deputy who was coming on duty meet him there. Tucker could have swapped deputies' cars, and they could have continued searching for Thomas. But... That didn't happen. They didn't go past the gate, and by 6 a.m., the deputy was dropping Tucker off back at his house, where his family was hoping for any news at all, and he wasn't able to give them anything. Thankfully, this town is full of old money, and Thomas's friend Christian's dad actually owned a helicopter. Talk about a good person to have on your side. So Christian's dad sets out to look for Thomas's car from a bird's eye view, and at 8.45 a.m. on Thanksgiving morning, they spot Thomas's Durango hidden under some trees, parked off a dirt road off of the county baseball fields. I'll post a picture of where the car was found on my Instagram under Thomas's headlight, as always, at the Heather Ashley. You would have to know this area well to even know this road existed. It used to be a legitimate road, but it's no longer used. Police find the car in park, unlocked, and with the driver's side window rolled halfway down. According to his mom and brother, Thomas would never leave his vehicle unlocked, let alone leave one of the windows rolled down. Deputies say that there are no signs of a struggle in the SUV, but I'm going to call bullshit on this, and I'll tell you why. They note that Thomas's keys and backpack, wallet and phone are missing from the car, but his auxiliary cord is left, still plugged into the dashboard. What they fail to mention is the styrofoam cup in the driver's side cup holder, Michael's debit card, a 25 caliber bullet casing found in the passenger floorboard, which we'll talk about later, a smear of blood on the driver's side door, and someone had gone around to the back of his vehicle and urinated on the ground. Like, it's cool, let me pee before I ditch this stolen vehicle real quick. Think of how brazen and untouchable this person had to have felt to do that. No one in Thomas's immediate family owned any 25 caliber guns. Thomas didn't like guns. Thomas didn't go shooting with his friends who liked guns. They just weren't a part of his life. So a shell casing of a spent 25 caliber bullet found in his car is a red fucking flag. And let's ask some obvious questions really quickly. Who takes a backpack, a phone, a computer, a wallet, and keys, but leaves a perfectly good debit card sitting out in plain sight? 
I'll answer that. Someone who's trying to eliminate any trace of a person, not someone looking to steal anything worth something. Authorities told Penny that the bullet was found in the back of the SUV, but one of the searchers who came out to help police told her that they had actually seen the bullet in the front floorboard of the passenger side. And I'm more inclined to believe this witness than the sheriff's department in this case, so... They also said that within a couple of days of finding the car, that the blood had been tested and it was Thomas's. However, according to Penny, they never asked for anything of Thomas's to compare the DNA evidence to. So it begs the question, how did they come to that conclusion? And if they swabbed the blood smear, why didn't they swab the cup they found in the driver's side cup holder? Thomas hadn't purchased any drinks that night, and when he did, he always opted for bottles instead of fountain drinks. A grid search for Thomas starts immediately. According to ABC News 7, they did not skimp on resources. They called out Texas Parks and Wildlife, Texas Metro Police, helicopters, canines, and had searchers on horseback and even volunteers on ATVs out searching for him. Penny tells me that one of the people volunteering in the search sees a deputy wiping down the inside of Thomas's Durango, which they said they were trying to do to get a scent for the dogs. But that's not how scent trails work. Wiping down the inside of the Durango just wipes away evidence and gives you the scent of anyone and everyone who had just been in that car. Generally, police ask for an item that only the missing person had touched, like in the Chris Watts case. They used the girl's shoes. They couldn't use their dirty clothes because Chris said he had picked them up and his scent would also have been on them. No one ever asked Thomas's family for any items of his to give to the dogs to aid in their search. They bring out a set of canines to the scene and they alert to Thomas's scent inside and outside of the Durango, but that's it. Later that afternoon, the SUV was not taken back to the police station to be combed through. It was not towed to a crime lab. It was simply given right back to his mom to do as she wished with it. And when she got it, the blood smear on the driver's side door was gone. Michael's debit card, the one who had been left in plain sight, had simply been returned to him. Two days later, the sheriff's department changes their mind and takes the car back from Penny, and a second set of dogs goes out to the now empty area of land where they had recovered Thomas's vehicle, and they alert to Thomas's scent and follow it about three-fourths of a mile until it abruptly stops where some marshlands start. The marsh is about a fourth of a mile wide before it turns into the Canadian River. What they use for Thomas's scent is beyond me, but whatever. A week or so later, they released the car back to Penny, and to her knowledge, the only thing fingerprinted was the outside of the driver's side door, and she was never made aware of any of the results. They find no evidence in between the set of trees Thomas's vehicle was parked under and where the scent trail ended. No cell phone, no footprints, no tire tracks, no book bag, no keys, nothing. It's as if Thomas walked there and vanished. Thomas wasn't a woodsy kind of guy either. He didn't go camping. He didn't dabble in tree forts. It wasn't like he was going to take some time to himself in the wilderness, especially not on Thanksgiving Day, when he had just made plans for the weekend with his friends he had just been out with the night before. Mounted searchers go all the way down the banks of the Canadian River and the surrounding areas and don't stop until they hit the Oklahoma border, which is about 240 miles, by the way, and that's not including the winding turns of the river, so Full credit goes to those guys. That was no easy task. 
But unfortunately, the search comes up empty. Not a single trace of Thomas. Since scent trails, volunteer searches, and a walk all the way down the banks of the Canadian River had resulted in nothing, the Sheriff's Department switches gears and takes a look at Thomas's cell phone records, community CCTV cameras, which are security cameras, and some bank activity. Cameras catch Thomas leaving the middle school parking lot at 11.21 p.m., just like his friends had said. At 11.28 p.m., Thomas's mom's debit card is swiped at Franck Gas Station, which was only half a mile from the middle school. This gas station didn't have any working cameras. It didn't even have a convenience store. It's literally just a pump that only takes credit cards where you go to get gas and you leave. Now, I'm going to get numbersy here, so bear with me. While at Franck, he spent $45 on gas. His gas tank held... 24.6 gallons of gas. The average price of gas there around the time he went missing was roughly $1.90, so doing the math, he filled up with about 23.6 gallons. He was literally on E when he filled up. When Penny got the Durango back, it only had three-fourths of a tank of gas left. It would get around 19 miles to the gallon in the city, and there aren't many highways in Canadian at all. And one-fourth of his gas tank would be 6.2 gallons of gas used. Multiply that by 19 and you get 117 miles driven between the time he filled up at 11.28 p.m. and when his SUV was seen on CCTV footage passing the water treatment plant near where the car was ditched at 5.55 a.m. But it was also seen passing Alexander's convenience store at around 5.45 a.m., just 10 minutes before that, the exact same time that the deputy allegedly told Thomas's brother that he couldn't go past the gate and they needed to come back and drop him back off at his house. Alexander's is at one end of the tiny town, where Thomas's truck was found was on the exact opposite side. It takes less than five minutes to get from Alexander's to where his truck was dumped, so it sounds to me like whoever was driving Thomas's truck avoided 2nd Street, which is the main road straight through town. About a week after Thomas went missing, Penny says that the sheriff showed her a photo of Thomas filling up with gas at Franck. Now, I'm not sure why, because we knew he'd been there. He used her debit card. But what's weird to her is that the photo seemed to have been taken at ground level, not like an angle you'd catch on a security camera. She says the sheriff said the photo came from the Dollar General cameras next door, and I called, and they do have cameras pointed towards the gas pumps. But Penny says that she had been told that the Dollar General cameras hadn't been working on the day that Thomas went missing. So far, the last positive record we have of Thomas is at 11.28 p.m. on the 23rd when he swiped his mom's debit card to get gas. However, we learned that he texted his ex-girlfriend Sage at 11.35 p.m., she had texted asking him if he was okay. It's reported that she had a weird feeling and that's what prompted the text and Thomas responded that he was. She texted him again at 11.40 p.m. and he never responded back. So now we're working on 11.35 p.m. being the last positive sighting or communication from Thomas. Thomas's mom has never been shown her son's cell phone records. The sheriff's department hasn't shared them with her, and when she asked Thomas's dad for access to the records, since he was on his plan, she says that he didn't want to go through the whole process. The last ping his phone ever sent out was at 12.10 a.m., the same time his last text showed as delivered, and it put him near the town's football stadium, which, surprise, doesn't have any cameras. This ping would make sense because according to CCTV footage, he turned out of Franck in the direction you'd need to go to head to the stadium. 
His last text out was 11.35 p.m., and his last cell phone ping was at 12.10 a.m. Our time frame of when something happened to him is going to be between those two times. 35 minutes, because I've said it before and I'll say it again, people don't just turn off their cell phones. Our time frame of when the cell phone was turned off and when his Durango passed the water treatment plant is about five and a half hours. So that's 330 minutes to drive 117 miles. Where in the free hell did this Durango go? You have to consider that at least seven people were out looking for him between curfew and 6 a.m. How did they never cross paths? I started to wonder if they drove somewhere desolate or maybe parked in a garage and left it running, but a Durango burns through about 0.35 gallons of gas per hour while idling, which would only equate to about one and a half gallons of gas used. So considering that math, we now know that whoever took his car did in fact drive the shit out of it that night, but where to and why? The small community of Canadian is baffled. This is a town of 2,700 people. Everyone knows everyone. People disappear in big cities all the time. But how does someone disappear in a tiny town where everyone knows everything? And how does no one seem to know anything? If you miss church in a small southern town, everyone is talking about it. But you go missing and all of a sudden no one knows a thing? According to the news outlet My High Plains, not one single tip had been called in about Thomas's disappearance. By December 3, 2016, Thomas is still missing, and Canadian Texas gets their first snowstorm of the season. It's cold, the elements are harsh, and everyone is worried about whatever happened to Thomas, and if he's still out there, what he might be enduring. The local chatter isn't hopeful at all, and most everyone believes that a rancher will eventually find his body. The sheriff's department has totally halted their search efforts for Thomas, but says they're still looking for answers, whatever that means. With no new leads and no closer to finding her missing son, Thomas's mom hires a private investigator known for finding missing teens, Klein Investigations. Some of you might remember their work on the Dior Coons case where he was hired by little Dior's family and came to the conclusion that the family knew more than they were letting on. Klein investigations are there to figure shit out whether you like what they find or not, and if they find out that you're guilty of something or they think you might be, they're not going to be quiet about it. Anyways, Thomas's family is naturally heartbroken but still optimistic and they're holding out for a Christmas miracle. But that miracle never happens, Christmas comes and goes, and Thomas is still missing. Thomas's dad tells ABC News 7 that the holidays were more than difficult. Another week or so goes by and an article comes out by KFDA 10 that says the sheriff's office now believes that Thomas simply ran away. Who in the drunk fuck runs away on foot when they have a perfectly good Dodge Durango with a full tank of gas? Who ditches their car to run away but takes their keys with them? Why would you run away but take your freaking high school book bag with your schoolwork and school-issued computer with you? Some people just don't think before they speak, and when it's law enforcement, it hurts my soul. Authorities even say that Thomas was an avid internet user, but none of his social media accounts had been touched since he went missing. But sure, he ran away on foot after driving down a dirt road to hide his own vehicle. Makes sense. On January 27th, a lineman working off of Farm to Market Road called in that he had found a backpack over a barbed wire fence in the Gene Howe Wildlife Management Area. 
Word travels fast in a small town, and Penny starts getting texts saying that they found Thomas's backpack. They start asking her if it's really his and asking if the news is true, but Penny doesn't know because no one's contacted her about it. But fast forward five days later, and the sheriff calls her to tell her that they found Thomas's backpack and a single set of footprints leading up to it. You don't say. He called Thomas's mother on the same day the media was alerted. She had been given only hours' notice before the news published the story. The backpack is found about four miles from where the dogs lost track of Thomas's scent and was only seven miles from Canadian, so there and back would be a whopping 14 miles. Where in the world did this Durango go for the other 103 missing miles? Assuming they went as far as humanly possible and then turned around and came right back, the Durango could only have gone most likely 52 miles away, which is not a huge radius. So whoever did it and wherever Thomas is, is probably going to be within that radius, much like his book bag was. There will be a lot of map photos related to this case posted on my Instagram, as you know, under the Tom Brown highlight at the Heather Ashley. The backpack looks to have been found almost midway between where his SUV was dumped and Lake Marvin, a local hangout and party spot for Canadian teens. Police had done a huge grid search in that area and all the way down the Canadian River. So how was this missed? Or was the backpack brought later? The sheriff announces that he thinks it's been there the entire time Thomas has been missing. I mean, it did have an indent in the ground when they picked it up. And when Penny does finally get to see it, it is in fact weathered. But everything is still there, including a school-issued computer. Whoever put it there wasn't trying to steal anything. They were just trying to get rid of all the traces of Thomas. But in talking to Penny, she says that at one point in time after the recovery of his backpack, the sheriff came to her and said that there were a lot of food wrappers in Thomas's book bag and that he thought Thomas might be hiding out there and living off of bonbons. Okay, so... Now you don't think it's been there the whole two months, or you think he's going back to the stationary backpack every time he eats to stash food wrappers. Or we're going to pretend that this kid ran away on his own just to stay in this tiny-ass town, weather an ice storm, survive it, and eat tasty cakes the whole time. How was he buying them? At the local convenience store under his invisibility cloak? The fact that anyone thought she may be dumb enough to believe this theory makes me big mad. Assuming that the wheels in her brain wouldn't turn fast enough to realize how much sense this didn't make and how much it conflicted with the original statement made about the backpack having been there the entire time Tom had been missing. And why aren't we focusing on the footprints? I guess we're going to believe that footprints in the mud survive winter weather. According to Thomas's mom, they never took a cast of this footprint, but they did take a photo. Okay, so what size is it? What brand of shoe? Was it male or female? I honestly couldn't tell you. Now that they've gotten Thomas's backpack, they do another ground search, hoping to find his phone, keys, or wallet. But of course, this doesn't happen, much like every other search they've done. But this is the first search they've done in months, so at least they're doing something. I'm curious what this tiny sheriff's department could possibly be doing with their days, considering their crime rate is 46% below the national average. 
According to Area Vibes, which is a website you can check and compare crime rates on, Canadian doesn't even register next to the national average when it comes to murder, rape, robbery, assault, burglary, theft, and vehicle theft. The only statistics that register against the national average is violent crime and property crime. Violent crime is listed at 217 for every 100,000 people, and, well, they only have 2,700 people, so we account for the fact that Canadian Texas is only 2.7% of 100,000, and that gives you roughly eight violent crimes. Property crime is listed at 1,265 for every 100,000 people, so if we do the same math here, that's a total of 34 property crimes. So we're talking about running into mailboxes and throwing a rock at Wanda's garden gnomes. Math is hard, y'all, and my brain almost quit on me trying to figure that out. The point here is that nothing is happening in Canadian. What was local law enforcement doing with their time instead of putting their efforts into finding Thomas? Four days after the backpack was announced to have been found, the Moms for Tom Facebook page asked for any Canadian high school students who were at Lake Marvin on the night of November 23rd to contact them. The page promised that they'd remain anonymous because, you know, hazards of a small town. Word is that there may have been a party down there that night, and since the backpack was found halfway between Canadian and Lake Marvin, they're wondering if they may have seen his Durango and who was driving it. Maybe they even heard a rumor about what happened that night. But it doesn't generate any new information. No one says that they ever saw Thomas or his SUV at the lake that night. Klein Investigations feels that they've narrowed down a group of people who they feel have direct knowledge of the events leading to Tom's disappearance, but they don't name any names. I don't even think Penny was made aware of who these three people might have been, but I do have some guesses. Later that same month, Klein Investigations announces that they're considering Thomas's disappearance a criminal investigation, something I think the Sheriff's Department should have done from day one. The Sheriff's Department releases a statement right after Klein's and says that they've been treating Tom's disappearance as a crime since day one, that everything's treated as a crime scene until proven otherwise. And while they should, they've been pretty adamant that Thomas ran away on his own accord, and there's nothing criminal about that. He's 18. Time continues to pass and pass, and nothing seems to be happening. How in the world is this small town hiding such a big secret? In late April of 2017, Klein Investigations, along with volunteers in the community and a cadaver dog, do a pretty sizable search. The dogs alert to an area near Lake Marvin. There were concerns that the dogs were alerting to a body that had been located in that same vicinity 20 years prior, but I always say there are no coincidences in crime. They have the cadaver dogs walk around and get into Tom's vehicle, and they alert both outside and inside of his Dodge Durango. It's here where the police department and Klein seem to start butting heads. Klein Investigations has the luxury of theorizing and speculating using common sense, physical, and circumstantial evidence. The sheriff's department low-key throws some shade at them, saying that all Klein has are theories and that the sheriff's office works with evidence or lack thereof. They continue to say that Tom's on the run, so who's into theories now? Klein now feels confident in saying that he thinks Tom is deceased and that this isn't a missing person's investigation, it's a recovery. They believe that whatever happened happened at Lake Marvin and someone drove his truck there, headed back, threw his book bag out of the window half the way back to Canadian and then ditched Tom's SUV down that small dirt road off of the baseball fields. 
But screw what Klein said, right? Because the sheriff's department says that Lake Marvin is not a point of interest in this case. Remember that. In a weird interview with the sheriff, the interviewer asks if there's a reward for information about Thomas, and he says, yes, 40000 give or take, but it's not about money, it's about finding Tom. But rewards are about money, that's literally the whole point. There's a $40,000 incentive to sing like a canary. But instead of using that as an opportunity to entice new leads or tips, he just says, it's not about the money. In July of 2017, Penny gets a text from one of the local deputies asking for the four-digit pin to Tom's phone, and she gave it to them but asked why they needed it because as far as she knew, no one had his phone. They told her they were tying up loose ends and it was never mentioned again. Oh, hell no. Sure, I'll give you the code, but I'm going to type it in my damn self. Moving on. Klein starts organizing a search at the end of September of 2017, scheduled to take place on October 14th of 2017, off of Lake Marvin Road, near where they found his backpack. They ask for 100 volunteers. It's my understanding that he chose this specific location because he was told not to. When I tell you I like Klein, I like Klein. They go on their search, and not 10 minutes in, someone spots an iPhone. It was powered down, but powered right back up like it was nothing. There was no evidence of water damage to this phone whatsoever. So, through ice storms and a Texas summer, you're telling me this phone preserved itself and its battery. I'll take I think not for 1200 They also happen to stumble upon a gun holster during the search as well. And I mean, this is Texas, but I don't care. Like I said, for the second time in this episode, there are no coincidences in crime. Two months later, in December of 2017, the sheriff told Penny that the phone found on that search did indeed belong to Thomas. But according to the woman who found it, the phone was rose gold. And Thomas didn't have a rose gold phone. He had a regular gold phone. That's rose gold minus the rose. That is a lack of rose pigmentation. You get it. I have to wonder if they found his actual phone back in July when they asked for the pin. Or maybe someone had just had it all along and made it known at that point. I've seen a photo of the phone in the place where it was found, and it's really hard to tell which shade of gold it is. So go to my Instagram at the Heather Ashley and check it out for yourself under Thomas's highlight at the top of my profile and let me know what you think. Thomas's mom has never seen this phone in person, nor has she seen any of the information taken from it. Now we have a backpack and a phone, both found in areas that have allegedly already been searched. Also in October of 2017, Penny filed a public records request for some information relating to her son's case. And while informative, none of it would be sensitive information that would compromise the investigation. The attorney general gave the sheriff's department a deadline of October 27th to respond to the request and explain why Penny shouldn't have access to the records. The attorney general did not receive a response from the sheriff by the deadline. They hadn't even heard back from them by December 20th. Seriously, what the fuck is everybody doing out in Canadian that makes them so busy? The Amarillo Globe shares the response from an assistant attorney general, which reads, Consequently, we find the department, Hemhill County, failed to comply with section 552.301 of the government code for the information at issue. A governmental body's failure to comply with the procedural requirements of section 552 
2.301 results in the legal presumption that the requested information is public and must be released unless there is a compelling reason to withhold the information from disclosure. The sheriff, who didn't seem in a hurry to deny the request in a timely manner, then filed a lawsuit against the attorney general's office in an effort to get them to reconsider their decision, according to ABC7 Amarillo. The county attorney makes a statement regarding the situation, saying that the entirety of the file contains information that, if made public, could compromise a criminal prosecution should one prove warranted. And that's according to the Amarillo Globe. Which is crap, by the way. According to ABC7 Amarillo, Penny only requested search volunteer names, the dates that DPS, the Texas Rangers, and the FBI got involved, press releases, which deputies were assigned to the case, personnel disciplinary reports, the number of photos taken and recordings made, along with the classification of the case, whether they considered it cold or ongoing. None of that information would hinder the investigation, but it sure as hell would make it painfully clear if someone wasn't doing their job. To this date, Thomas's mother has never received any of this information. In February of 2018, it's announced that the Texas Attorney General's office is going to take a look at the case. Klein asks that, with spring coming, for everyone with land around Lake Marvin to keep an eye out for sinking ground, which is such a horrible thing to have to ask for people on behalf of your missing son. On January 9th of 2019, at 3 p.m. after years of searching and living in limbo without her son, Penny got the news no mom ever hopes for, but in her case, offered some form of closure. The remains of Thomas were recovered off of Lake Marvin Road, only 12 miles from where his car was dumped. Roughly 30% of his remains were discovered, and it was all skeletal at this point, almost two and a half years later. It's said that animals also got to his remains during the decomposition process. That Durango drove over 100 miles that night after Thomas filled up with gas, but his body was dumped only 12 miles away. Was his body in the truck the whole time? Did they dump him and then ride around in a panic for hours? It only took six days to confirm that the remains found by Lake Marvin did, in fact, belong to missing Thomas Brown. On February 2, 2019, a celebration of life ceremony is held at the Canadian High School where he once proudly acted in theater, played football, and served as class president. I would say that Thomas was finally laid to rest, but he wasn't and he never has been. Thomas's remains have never been released back to his family. According to Penny, she has never so much as seen photos of where they found his body. She doesn't even know which of his remains they did locate outside of his skull since she did provide his dental records for comparison. KFDA 10 reports that one month after Thomas's remains were found, Klein organizes yet another search at Lake Marvin and asks the public to stay away from the area. Not much else is said about why they were searching or what they were looking for. I could assume it was a search for clothes or remains, but again, it's just an educated guess. Klein releases a press statement that says the remains were found by a person who heard the call from law enforcement and our firm asking everyone to keep watch on Lake Marvin Road. This person did the right thing. If you see something, say something. And that's what they said because that's what they were told. 
but his remains weren't found by some random good Samaritan. His remains were found by none other than the first responding officer who took 45 minutes just to call Penny after she called the sheriff's department to report Thomas missing. It's said that he just happened to stumble across them when he was searching for deer sheds, aka antlers, while on duty, quite a ways from the main road. Curious about what was on Thomas's death certificate, Penny sent me a copy she has. She told me that when it was given to her, that it was the only copy that she was allowed to have and she couldn't get any more. And this just isn't true. You can wallpaper your house with them if you want to. I also noticed that the background of the death certificate didn't have a rainbow-colored safety pattern like I'd seen on all of the other Texas death certificates I'd seen. Let your mind wander with that, but I've called more than a handful of medical examiners and forensic pathologists in Texas, and everyone seemed to be fully aware of death certificates having a rainbow-colored safety pattern in the background. By immediate cause of death, it doesn't say undetermined. Instead, it says pending. And according to every ME's office I've talked to, that's only written on preliminary death certificates and generally means that they're waiting on tests to come back before a final one is issued. But they found Thomas's body almost 10 months ago now, so why does it still say pending? Thomas's remains are currently with the Texas Attorney General's office in evidence, even though a couple of months ago they suspended the case due to a lack of evidence. They finally find this boy's body, and less than a year later, that is when the case is suspended. To my knowledge, the cup on the driver's side cup holder has never been fingerprinted or swabbed. There have not been any tower dumps to figure out who was close to where Thomas was during the 35 minutes where things went from fine to his phone being turned off. Penny has never been told how far back his seat was set or leaned back to compare to how Thomas drove his vehicle, which he always leaned back absurdly far. After all, he was six foot one and 180 pounds. I can think of a number of people whose phones I would have asked to look at. No one's checked on where the responding officer's car was for the 45 minutes it took for him to so much as call Penny, let alone show up at her house. No one has reported on what other calls went out that night that would have held up said responding officer's response time. I genuinely feel like Thomas and his family were dealt the worst hand when it came to thoroughly investigating their son's disappearance and death. There are more questions in this case than there are answers, and I'm still on a mission to get to the bottom of it all. ABC7 reports that a responding officer to Thomas's disappearance, who just happened to stumble across the skeletal remains one day in January, has been fired. He was fired in the spring of this year, just months later, due to factual issues, according to the Hemphill County attorney. The county attorney said that he had refused multiple cases submitted by the officer for lack of sufficient probable cause and or misapplication of the law. That's kind of a big fucking deal. I also found a report where this same officer was charged with deadly conduct in 2003 when off-duty, he followed a car that passed his house more than once and then pointed a gun at the driver. The driver was a Pizza Hut delivery driver trying to find an address. I have found four different sheriffs or police departments that this deputy is reported to have worked for. The sheriff himself was recently investigated by the Texas Rangers after he allegedly threatened a juvenile probation officer over a case in February. According to ABC7, the sheriff was investigated for official oppression and tampering with a witness. He will not be running for re-election. There is so much more to this case than I could ever convey in one single episode, but today you got the overall rundown. I'll continue to look into this case as we continue on with others, and rest assured, as soon as I get any new information, you all will be the first to know. 
As always, if you love this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get a notification when new episodes are posted. And if you're feeling froggy, drop us a rating or even a review. We love reading them. And I can't wait to bring you a new case next Monday. But until then, we out. Mm